Um, we have uh, been led in prayer with regard to this being the Sanctity of Life Month and this Sunday in particular, designed to focus our attention on that. This is, of course, one of the great, if not the greatest, moral evils of our nation and of our day. And we as Christians should be deeply and profoundly concerned with it. Through the uh, wonderful ministry of the CareNet Pregnancy Center, we have a very tangible opportunity to uh, promote life and even to influence many women from uh, the possibility of having an abortion, uh, dissuading them from it. And we are entering into an effort to help raise money for CareNet Center in a real practical way. Uh, we will have baby bottles available for those of you who would be willing to take one as you leave the sanctuary today, and we hope that uh, everyone will take one. You'll be able to keep it for about a month. We're going to encourage you to put as much change in that baby bottle as you possibly can. Uh, put some dollar bills in there if you like, and let's, uh, by the end of the month, uh, be able to give a very, very generous Offering and gift to the CareNet Pregnancy Center. They're still in the process of paying for the uh, the uh, what do you call that machine, Greg? An ultra ultrasound for the ultrasound machine, and uh, you know that has a profound influence on women as well. Uh, we were privileged, Diane and I, not so long ago, to see the the baby girl in Rebecca's womb, and many of the rest of you have seen it. We used to just see those pictures, you know, but to go in and to actually see a little baby kicking around in there. And uh, we, we watched this little girl playing with her toes, which was kind of cute. But when women who are contemplating a divorce see that baby moving and living in their womb, something... What? Did I say divorce? Okay. <laughs> uh, abortion. Uh, I actually caught it. I wouldn't have caught it, though, if you didn't laugh. So um, you're free to always laugh whenever I say something, and uh, I may or may not stop to find out what I said. Back to the seriousness of this. If women are contemplating an abortion and they see that, how powerful that can be. That's just one thing that this money would go to. So uh, my hope and prayer and desire and that of my fellow pastors is that Heritage Baptist Church will be one of the most generous and liberal churches in this whole community to support this cause. So take a bottle with you when uh, you leave the sanctuary today. Um, Greg and Morgan will be uh, there to give those out. And will we also have some for the folks in the overflow room, Greg? Okay, very good. Thank you. Now, may I ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're going to be looking together, especially at verses 13 through 16a. 13 through 16a. Obviously, I'm coming toward the end of this exposition. There will be two or three more sermons, God willing. Before we read the passage, I want to ask you this question. When circumstances in life change for you, for example, something very 
discouraging and difficult comes your way. Or something wonderful and very encouraging unfolds. What is the first thing you do? Keyword first. What's the first thing you do instinctively, almost without even thinking about it? The best possible answer, if you're telling the truth, is this. I pray. I pray. Sometimes I fall down on my knees and out of desperation plead for special grace to face my trial, my difficulty. At other times, I sing to God and praise Him. But I pray. That would be a wonderful answer to the question. And I hope that many of us are able to honestly say, that's what I do when circumstances in life for me change. You see, that is always the way a Christian should respond to circumstances and changing circumstances in life. And that response will require some kind of prayer, whatever the circumstances may be. Let me put it a little differently. I am coming here this morning on the basis of James chapter 5, verses 13 and following, to remind you that whatever the circumstances of our lives may be, we have a God for all times. We have a God for all circumstances. And when those various times come into our lives, we should pray. Now, if that's all I said, and I closed in prayer, and you went home and you read this passage over and over and over, I, I would have given you the key to understanding James chapter 5, verses 13 and following. But that is not what we're going to do. So let me take a few moments to lead us through this passage. Now, obviously, James, as I've hinted, is closing his practical letter. He's what we might say, winding it down. And he's going to end where he began. And you probably know what I have in mind because I've already suggested the subject of prayer. That is where James began. Could I just take you back for a brief moment to chapter 1? Notice with me uh, verses 2 and following and see how he began his practical letter with the subject of prayer. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, and particularly wisdom in the context of trial and affliction, if any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Let him ask God. That is, let him pray to God, who gives generously, gives wisdom generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask or pray in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is James talking about? Facing trial and affliction in life, 
with a desire to grow in grace, knowing that you desperately need God's help, and therefore, praying. Praying in faith and in a way that is not wavering. That's how this little letter began. And now as he winds it down, come back with me to chapter 5, we see he ends in the same way. Actually, in verses 7 through 12, if I chose to take the time, I could show you that James used the word patience, waiting, and steadfast seven times. And it's very interesting that in verses 13 through 18, he uses a form of the word prayer seven times. Trials should be met with prayer. And it's very obvious that this paragraph, and I'm considering verses 13 through 18 as a kind of paragraph, they're an entity all uh, in and of themselves, you will see that seven times the word prayer is used. Just take my um, word for that, if you will, right now, and we'll see some of them as we proceed with our study. So this is about what we do instinctively when circumstances in life change. And what we should do is to pray. Now, as we begin to look at this closing paragraph of James' little letter, I want to confine our study this morning to just verses 13 through 16a. And I hope that will make sense to you when you see why I stopped at the beginning of verse 16. Now, since the subject is prayer, we're going to see um, things such as circumstances. We're going to see how elders of the church play into the whole subject of prayer. We're going to give a little thought to the idea of anointing certain people with oil. We're going to be caused to think a little bit about the relationship of prayer to faith. And we're going to also think about the relationship of sin to sickness. And finally... In these few verses, we're going to be thinking about confessing our sins to one another. All of that is in verses 13, 14, 15, and the beginning of verse 16. So as we look at these things, I want to suggest this outline. We're going to see, first of all, the individual at prayer. We're going to see you at prayer. We're going to see me at prayer, the individual, especially in verse 13. And then when we come to verses 14 and 15, we're going to see the elders at prayer. And then when we come to the first part of verse 16, we're going to see the brethren at prayer. See if you see the outline as I read this passage now. Is anyone among you suffering? He's talking about the individual. Let him pray. Is anyone the individual, cheerful. Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. So we have the individual at prayer in verse 13 and now we have the introduction of the elders at prayer in verses 14 and 15. So I'll continue reading in verse 14. Let them pray over him, that is the sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There we have the elders at prayer. Now notice the brethren at prayer in 16a. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then I'm going to stop right there because what uh, James goes on to uh, speak to us about is the power of prayer when it is offered in faith by a man or woman of godliness. And you remember he gives the wonderful example of Elijah. And we will come to consider that later. So, as we think about prayer this morning in responding to the various circumstances of life, we have, first of all, the individual at prayer, secondly, the elders at prayer, and thirdly, the brethren at prayer. Let's look at the individual at prayer in verse 13. Maybe you noticed that he gives us two, for instances, two circumstances that ought to be instinctively responded to in prayer. What are the two circumstances? What is the first one? Right at the beginning of verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The first circumstance that James gives us which should be responded to instinctively in prayer is suffering. Now, when we think of suffering, we tend to think of someone um, who may be in severe pain because of sickness and of certain that is a form of suffering. But I want to remind you that the word for suffering is a much broader word. It covers any kind of suffering at all. Um, some of you are undergoing the meaning of suffering right now. Um, some of you are struggling financially. I mean, really struggling. Some of you are without employment. I talked to a, a brother last night who's, who's really struggling and understandably struggling because of the lack of employment. Some of you may be going through serious marital problems. There are so many possibilities. Some of you may be experiencing some form of persecution. This is a broad word. Any kind of suffering should immediately cause you to pray. But you know, our tendency is to make some effort of at alleviating our suffering. That's my tendency. And then, don't you sometimes catch yourself and say, wait a minute, I haven't even prayed about this. I've tried this, and i tried this and this, and then all of a sudden I realized, I should have prayed about this immediately. Why didn't I pray first? And then go about trying to solve my problem. The first thing we should do, this is what James says, are any of you suffering is anyone at Heritage Baptist Church suffering, let him pray. Let her pray. That's the right response. And, of course, we shouldn't just immediately pray, God, get me out of this mess. God, relieve my suffering. It's okay to pray that. We, we are expected to ask for deliverance. But the first thing we should be concerned about is, God, will you give me grace? to face this suffering for however long you choose to call me to endure it with faith and with grace and with sweet submission so that I can make being a Christian look wonderful. Give me grace, dear Lord. 
to face this. And then we pray, if it could please God, that He might alleviate this suffering and show us how we may alleviate it. Um, It was interesting to read this week what Luther did whenever he heard bad news. He used to say this. He was known for saying this. Come, let us sing a psalm in spite of the devil. Now, I'm, I, I kind of bumped into the next, the next circumstance, which is cheerfulness. And we're going to see in just a moment that we're supposed to sing when we're cheerful. But before we get there, Luther says, I think it's a pretty good idea to sing when we're suffering. And he was known to say that. Bad news came. Come, let's sing a psalm in spite of the devil. And of course, singing a psalm would be a form of prayer. Let's respond to this providence in a Christian way, Luther said. And that's what we need to work on and make progress in. Now let me quickly go to the second circumstance for the individual. And it's right there again in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? What should you do when you are cheerful? You should sing praise. I want to underscore the word sing. You should sing I've recently listened to a lecture um, from a, a godly musician who, who helped the hearers understand that God wired us to be helped by music. And it's interesting how many times in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, we're commanded to sing. Singing isn't just some sociological evolution that's okay. Singing is something God wants us to do. And there's something about music that stirs the soul and stirs the affections. And various kinds of music are, are appropriate for various kinds of affections. When we're singing, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him hanging on the tree, we sing sad music, somber music. But when we sing something about the triumph of our Savior over sin and death and the glory of heaven to come, we sing music that stirs us up to a lively, happy, joyful, celebratory uh, emotion. But we are to sing. And I'm going to just ask you what I think is a convicting question because it's convicted me in my preparation. When was the last time you sang because you were cheerful? I mean, sometimes we catch ourselves whistling or singing, you know, and, and we realize, you know, I'm really happy right now. I'm not asking exactly that. I want to know, when is the last time you said, I am so happy, I am so cheerful, this is such good news, I feel so good, I'm going to sing praise to God. I'm going to, I'm going to express this to God in singing, singing praise to God. Why would we sing praise to God? Because we know that the reason we're cheerful is because the gracious God of providence has brought something good into our lives. And if it isn't some particular providence, it's just providence in general. I'm so blessed with my home, so blessed with my family, so blessed with my employment, so blessed with my church, so blessed in a thousand ways. I'm cheerful. I should sing. I should sing praise. And the second thing I I want to remind you is that that is prayer. And I know you've heard me say that before, but when we sing out of our hymn book, occasionally we are stirring one another up. 
God rest ye merry gentlemen. I could, you know, I could stop here and say, Dave, just name me three or four songs where we're just stirring one another up. <clears throat> and sometimes we're confessing truth to one another, not particularly to God, but most of the hymns in our hymn book and most of the hymns that we sing that are not in our hymn book and most of the choruses that we sing are prayer. And we need to think of them as prayer. Because if you don't think of them as prayer, really, you're going to be taking the name of God in vain. You're just muttering words. No, we're talking to God. And that's why I would go so far as to encourage you, if you know the words well, close your eyes and get lost in communing with God and praising Him for who He is. Praise is prayer. If we're praising God, we're praying. So we always pray when we respond to a providence, sometimes just by talking and sometimes by singing. Do you sing praises to God frequently when you're cheerful? If not, then you're just taking the, the good, goodness of God for granted and there's no soul response rooted in a persuasion that I'm happy because God has been good to me. Oh, God, thank you. Isn't it terrible not to return praise to God? Isn't it hurtful to you when you do something kind for someone and there's no response whatsoever? God is showering us with kindness. God is the author of every cheerful moment in our lives. And His kindness deserves a response in prayer and sometimes singing, singing praise. I want to uh, share with you what one commentator, um, it's better to read it. He said it so well. We should take credit for this. What a beautiful picture of prayer. He puts it like this. <clears throat> he says, The Christian life is to be an exercise in practice consecration to hallow every pleasure and sanctify each pain. Hallow your pleasures sanctify your pains. Now listen to this. Our whole life, we might say, should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into His presence. In particular, this is an exercise in glad acceptance of the will of God. I like that, so angled. I don't know if any of you have seen that crazy advertisement on television. I just glanced at it once, where this kid is throwing a basketball on the roof of his house. He keeps working at it, and his brothers are around the corner on the driveway by the little basketball goal, and he can't even see them, but he throws it on the roof, knowing it'll bounce off, hoping it'll hit the driveway, and then bounce up and hit the, the backboard of the thing and go down on the goal. They must have tried that a thousand times, but he got it. And you only see him getting it. Well, the roof was angled just right. That's a crazy, crazy uh, advertisement. It's humorous to look at. But it made me think about angles. And our whole life, says this commentator, should be so angled that when suffering comes, go right back to God. I'm coming to you with this, God. When joy and cheerfulness comes, go right back to God. Thank you, God, for this emotion that I'm feeling right now. That's how we should live. And then he concludes by saying, in this voice of prayer, in this 
the voice of prayer and the voice of praise are one. For alike they say that the will of God is good. He's saying both of these. The voice of prayer and suffering says, God, I know you're up to something good. Help me to glorify you. And the, and the voice of praise in cheerfulness says, God, you're so good. In either case, whether it's the voice of prayer or the voice of praise, they both say the will of God is good. And so, that's how the individual prays and under what circumstances. Very quickly, let us see the elders at prayer. There's the individual at prayer in verse 13. And this is introduced to us in verse 14. Now, just uh, an observation in passing. Um, well, this is an individual who has a problem, of course. It says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. My observation in passing is that the New Testament assumes a plurality of elders for the church. Let him call for the elders of the church. We don't need to hammer that. We uh, believe strongly in the principle of plurality of elders and even parity of elders. But what I do want to draw your attention to more particularly is the assumption here. The assumption about the six sick person. Let me just ask you, what would you conclude about the sick person? Let me get you engaged mentally. Let me read it again. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with him with him in oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Just with regard to his sickness itself, what would you assume from that statement? Wouldn't you say, well, if he has to call for the elders of the church, it must be that he's homebound or in the hospital. <laughs> right? Because the elders have to get to him. Wouldn't you also conclude that he's probably bedridden? Because the text says that he will be raised up. I don't want to press that you know, in a dogmatic way. He could be sitting and very sick but unable to get around the house much. But in any case, this person is seriously debilitated. So, mind you, don't call for the elders of the church if you sprained your ankle. Okay? Pastor Keith will be there for you, but I'm not coming. <laughs> uh, this is obviously for serious debilitation. So we're talking about a person who needs to be raised up. And <clears throat> I want to submit to you that I believe that the elders, in a sense, represent the love of the church. The, the, you can't be here so that we can pray for you. On Wednesday nights we'll pray for you, but when, if the elders should ever have to come to your home and to the hospital to pray over you, don't just view them as these, quote, holy, so-called holy authoritative men who hold an office. No, these are, these are the shepherds of the flock coming to represent the whole flock. They represent the church. They're the elders of the church. The church cares about its sick people. It better care about its sick people or we're not a loving assembly. So the elders come and James gives them some directives 
and some promises and some qualifications. See if you can number how many directives and promises and qualifications. This will keep you, I trust, engaged for just a moment. The directives, first directive, comes to us in verse um, 14. Let them pray over him. Now, it's interesting that the word for prayer there is followed by um, the little uh, word epi, which means over. And so it, it is accurately translated, let them pray over. It's the only place, I believe, that these two words are put together like that in the New Testament. Let them pray over. What does that mean? Um, sometimes we say, I'm going through this situation and... Uh, I have to make some decisions. I'm going to pray over that matter. Well, that, that's not a geographical, spatial kind of praying. But I think what James is saying literally is go to the sickbed, go to that sofa, go to that hospital, and stand around that sick person and pray over them. I mean, maybe, maybe hold your hand over them. That would be okay. And Lord, this dear loved one, in whose presence we are, lying on this bed, desperate, you know, and on you go. I don't think so. It just doesn't mean pray about. It literally means pray over. One uh, commentator suggested that um, with men, uh, we might want to consider doing what Elijah did when he prayed over the boy and got right on top of him. I thought that was a pretty wild idea. I've never done that in visiting any men of the hospital. And that if women should go to pray for a sister in Christ, they should pray over her that way. I don't think that's what James means. But I do think, especially when he adds the idea of anointing with oil, that there is a physical proximity. We care about this body right here. We're praying over this body. And that's what the elders are to do. And then we're told that they are to anoint the person with oil. You see that in... um, Verse the latter part of verse 15, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what is this anointing with oil about? There's only one other place in the Bible where uh, this, this is recorded. I'll read for you this and I'll save you the time. Listen to these words. It's concerning uh, the disciples. It says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Of course, the the apostles were given the extraordinary gift of, of healing people by God's grace. But they anointed many with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. It's the only other place in the whole New Testament where anointing with oil and healing are put together. So what is this about? Well, this has been abused. It's been abused by the Church of Rome. It's been turned into a, a sacrament, as though many of you know from your past background Uh, it's called extreme unction and uh, interestingly extreme unction is something the priest does when someone's about to die I don't think this is about dying this is about living this is about healing it's not a sacrament there's no power in the oil it's clearly symbolic it's symbolic of anointing It's symbolic of the blessing of God, perhaps the blessing of the Holy Spirit. That's all it's designed to be. As we anoint this person with oil, we plead that you will anoint him or her 
with blessing, with the blessing of recovery. That's all it is. Now, I want to quickly answer this question. Is that essential? Is it essential to anoint people with oil? Certainly not. But is it okay to anoint people with oil? Of course. Is it good? Of course. Is it permissible? Of course. Now, if you associate anointing with oil with the day when the gift of healing was with the apostles, then you might want to say it's probably gone and we no longer need to anoint. But I don't believe that's what James is after. I don't believe that there's anything There's anything here to make us view this as something that was only for the early church or for the days of the apostles. My main reason is because he's setting forth normative ecclesiology. Call for the elders of the church as long as there will be... This is not about the apostles. This is not about people who have, quote, the gift of healing. This is about the church and what sick people in the church should do who are incapacitated. They should call for the elders. The elders should pray over them. They should anoint them with oil. Again, is it necessary? No. Is it good? Is it recommended? Is it okay? Of course. And I guess my personal view is the reason why I would be inclined to do that is simply because that's what the Scriptures tell us to do and there's no clear-cut undeniable argument that we should no longer do it. Lacking that, I think it's good to do it. But not doing it isn't going to keep somebody from being healed because it's not a sacrament. It's just a symbol. And there are many cases in the Bible where people were prayed for and there was no oil. So let's not get hung up on that. I'm just explaining that it is perhaps and probably symbolic of God's anointing. So that's what the the uh, elders are to do. But how many was that? Two things. Now, there are some promises. What are the promises? See if you can enumerate these. It says, Let them pray over the him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save. Sozo. Sometimes it uses this word in the Bible to mean the salvation of the soul. But... Many, many times, I could take you to scores of times, where it means literally to raise someone up to life or to, for someone to be recovered physically. So I think that's the first promise, that God will use prayer to heal this person. And the second promise really just reinforces the first. It says, and the Lord will raise him up. And so, in a sense, it's one thing. It's healing. The person will be saved from death, impending death, and will be raised up. Now, is, is this something that we can be absolutely sure of in every case and that it, there are absolutely no exceptions to it? You know the answer to that if you're well taught. If you're not even well-taught, but just reasonably well-taught? The answer is no. This is not a blanket, absolute promise that every time the elders of the church pray over someone who is sick, anointing them with oil and praying with faith, that they will be raised up. We can't take a passage like this and extract it in isolation from what the rest of the Bible teaches about prayer. 
And I'll just give you one example, okay? This is a governing principle. This is interpreting the Bible with the Bible. Would you just quickly turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is a very, very critical passage to understand in terms of developing a theology of prayer and faith and healing. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Some people take verse 15 and isolate it from verse 14. See what it says? Whatever we ask, we know that we have the request. No, listen. It is whatever we ask that is in accordance with His will. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. It is conceivable that we will ask God for things that are not according to His will. It's not only conceivable, it's reality. We pleaded with God to save our brother, Kim Alton. It wasn't God's will to do that. We're pleading with God these days to raise up Joel. He was prayed for again this morning by Pastor Joel. To this point, it hasn't been God's will to that. We shouldn't give up. He's still alive. But sometimes it isn't God's will. He has a better will. He has a higher will. But when it is His will and we pray in faith, He does it. And we should be encouraged by the passage. So, cautioned, yes, but encouraged especially. And I want to emphasize that. Because as you read the passage, James isn't embarrassed with the necessity of quickly saying, by the way, this won't always happen because you need to remember what John said. He wants us to to believe that there's a great possibility There's a strong likelihood. There's a real hope. Let's embrace it. That's what he wants us to understand, but not in a way that's presumptuous and and absolutistic. So that then we've got to say, now what happened? Well, then I guess we didn't have enough faith. It's our fault. There's something wrong here. Something wrong with us. And then you get into some some kind of a terrible self condemnation. No, it's the sovereign will of God. Paul prayed that his physical affliction, we believe it was a physical affliction, the thorn in his flesh would be removed. And it wasn't removed. Paul tells us that he left one of his dear friends by the name of Trophimus in a place called Miletus sick. Paul, why'd you leave him there sick? Didn't you pray for him? Of course he prayed for him. But it wasn't the will of God to raise him up at that time. And so we do have to keep that in mind. And yet, I want to say one more time, when you read this passage, do you go away with it primarily encouraged to pray that God will raise the sick, or do you go away primarily doubtful that He will? No. We go away from this passage with that hope, and we ought to exercise the directive and hope that the promise will be realized. Now, I just want to show you there's 
there's one more promise. There's a promise here. It says in the last part of verse 15, And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, the key preposition, key word is the preposition if, if, if. He's not saying for sure that this sick person is sick because of sin. But he certainly raises the possibility. This is a conditional statement. If his sickness was due to sin, and he calls for the elders of the church, and they deal faithfully with him, and his heart is convicted, and he seeks forgiveness from God, not only will he be raised up, but he will be forgiven. Now, if he's not raised up, I can assure you of this, he will be forgiven. (laughs) Because that is absolutely promised in the Bible. That if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you ever get on a deathbed and the elders of the church pray for you and you happen to know that there were some serious sins in your life that you've never really sought forgiveness for and repented of and that comes out in that visit and God Himself breaks your heart and you pour your broken heart out to God and ask for His forgiveness. If you're not raised up from the bed of affliction, you may be absolutely sure that your sins have been forgiven because the Bible is absolutely sure in its promise with that regard. So, the third promise is the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are some qualifications that that I hope you saw as we read the passage. How many of them are there? See if you can compute them. The first one comes to us with regard to the anointing of oil. Did you notice we're to anoint, elders are to anoint, the sick person with oil, quote, in the name of the Lord. And maybe that pertains to the prayer as well. Let them pray over him, anointing with oil, in the name of the Lord. Certainly, in the name of the Lord refers to the anointing with oil. It may include the prayer. What is that about? That simply means that we recognize that the authority to heal and to raise up a sick person belongs to God and God alone. And when we say, we ask this in the name of the Lord, we anoint you in the name of the Lord, we are saying, it is only He who can heal you and raise you up. It's not a magical formula the way it's been used today that whatever you say, quote, in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus, we now command you, Satan, to do this, that, and the other. We have no biblical warrant to do that. But when we ask God to do things He encourages us to do, we do it in His name. And I could take you to the book of Acts and I could show you where uh, the apostles did these things in the name of the Lord. It wasn't, and it's so as to to demonstrate to the whole world it isn't us. It isn't me, says Peter. And when they came and said, by whose name and authority have you done these things? They quickly said, we have done this in the name of the Lord. And so we recognize that the authority belongs to God. And that's an act of worship on the part of the elders when they make this visit. And you saw the other qualification It is prayer. It is faith. 
it says in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save him. I've already said that um, not every prayer of faith will be blessed of God to raise every person up. But this is for sure. If God is pleased to answer the prayer, it will only be if that prayer was in faith and by faith. Because faith gives glory to God. God does not answer prayers without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Faith gives honor and glory to God. It's an essential ingredient in our prayers. So if a person is raised up, that qualification must be met. So you see, it isn't about the apostles. This passage is about elders. It isn't about someone who has the gift of healing. Because you see, no one possesses the gift of healing. No one possesses the gift of healing. And yet, may I put it this way, in sort of a provocative way, the gift of healing is still with the church. And say, what do you mean? I thought you said no one possesses the gift of healing and that, that there was a sense in which some had the gift of healing and they no longer have it and they've been taken away from the church and yet you're saying the gift of healing is with the church. The gift of healing is with the church in these terms. That if God chooses to bless the prayers of His people and in this particular case the prayers of the elders to, uh, to heal and raise up a sick person then that gift is still uh, a gracious work on the part of God that we may um, hope for and rely upon and call upon. And if someone is healed, we say, thank you, God, for healing him. Thank you. That was a gift from you, God. We know that it wasn't just the doctor, it wasn't just the medicine. That was a gift. Thank you. In that sense, the gift of healing is still with the church. Now, very quickly, in the last place, I want us to just touch on the, the brethren at prayer. We've seen the individual at prayer in verse 13 uh, under various circumstances. We've seen the elders at prayer in verses 14 and 15. And now, just in the first part of verse 16, I want you to see the brethren at prayer. And you should notice the first word of verse 16. It's a very important word. Very important. Therefore, un. Therefore, so therefore has to refer to something that has preceded. And I think it gives us help in interpreting the first part of verse 16. And so what had he just finished saying? He had just finished saying that there's the possibility that the sickness is related to sin. You see that? And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There's a possible connection. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I have to confess to you that this, this particular verse is also subject to debate among good and godly people, as portions of verse 15 are. And there are some who say, well, verse 16 is about spiritual healing. You know, when you sin against a brother or a sister and harbor um, 
that pride that keeps you from going to them and seeking their forgiveness, uh, you enter into a state of spiritual sickness and unhealthiness. And that's very true. That's absolutely true. I do not deny that. That when we live in unconfessed sin and unrepented sin, we are not spiritually healthy. We are sick. And we're not going to be spiritually well and, and healed until we <clears throat> uh, confess the sin and repent of it. That, that is absolutely true. I do believe that. I believe that this verse is probably talking about physical healing. And I wouldn't fight over that. But the reason I believe that is because the therefore connects it to a case of physical restoration joined to sin on the part of the person who was sick. And furthermore, that's the way the word is usually used in the New Testament. So what is James saying to us? If I'm right, and I'm going to quote from another good commentator by the name of Mu in just a moment, if I'm right, what James is saying, folks, is, and this is kind of sobering, that it's, it's kind of dangerous to uh, sin against a brother or a sister and live in impenitence over that sin and not go to them and confess it and seek their forgiveness. Um, the God that we worship is, is a father who is determined to chasten his children. Hebrews 12. Anybody who lives without any chastening in their so-called Christian life under their so-called sonship or daughtership to God uh, is not a legitimate child of God because he disciplines and sometimes discipline can take the form of sickness. Not always. You have to be very careful about saying this because I don't want anybody to go out of here tonight because you get a fever and you're just certain that there's sin that you haven't repented of, you know, and you can get into that terrible introspection. But at the same time, I'm saying to you, of course God uses sickness to chastise his children. Why wouldn't he? He uses many things. And one form of sin that may bring about that kind of chastisement is sinning against your brothers and sisters and living in impenitence and not having the humility and the brokenheartedness to go to them and say, I need to seek your forgiveness. I have sinned against you. You know it. And I've known it. And I've tried to avoid it, but I can't avoid it any longer. And I need you to forgive me. I'm going to confess to you. I'm going to agree with what you've said. That's really what confession means. And I need you to forgive me. <clears throat> and if we're not willing to do that, we shouldn't be surprised if God might might chastise us with sickness. So, if that's the case, what do we need to do in order to be healed? If, if I'm interpreting this passage right, we need to go to our brother or our sister and confess our sins and seek forgiveness and pray for one another. Will you pray for me? I'm praying for myself. Um, I do need to be healed. I, I think that um, God is chastening me for my sin against you. That's certainly a possible meaning. Okay, I wouldn't die on that beach, but I believe in connection with what immediately preceded it, that is a very real possibility. So as Christians, we need to... Let's, let's be sure that our sicknesses 
are not due to any particular sin that we know of we're not repenting of. So here's where the balance comes in. Every time you're sick, you shouldn't conclude that you've been that you're that there's unconfessed, unforgiven sin in your life. Please don't hear me saying that. But I am saying that when we are sick, a good question to ask is, Lord, are there things in my life that you are providentially, kindly bringing to my attention through this difficult providence that I need to deal with? Uh, search my heart, O oh God, and know my ways and see if there be any weakness, fault, or disease within me. That's a great prayer to pray. There's nothing wrong with praying that. And God may bring something to the light of your conscience and say, Oh, it's right. I never did deal with that. In fact, I've kind of been aware of it, but sort of subconsciously, but I've been bearing it. I need to deal with that. Thank you, God. Give me the grace to deal with it. But if you pray that and you search your soul and all you know is just that you have remaining sin and every day of your life you're trying to keep shorter, counsel God and cleanse those things daily. Of course, we all are guilty every day of our life of the sins of omission. None of us will ever die suddenly without sin on our conscience because none of us have loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us have prayed as we ought, read as we ought, witnessed as we are always going to be guilty of some kind of sin. I'm not talking about that. It's unconfessed in sin not repented of. We need to be sure that we're dealing with that. And if we are sick, it isn't going to hurt to ask that question. Just to search our souls before God. Well, I need to um, <clears throat> conclude. But I told you I would read what Moose said, and this is what he says. It's a very brief quote. What kind of sins are to be confessed? It may be that James thinks only of those sins which have brought harm to others. But the end of the sentence makes it probable that specifically those sins which may have caused illness are intended. That you may be healed expresses the purpose of mutual confession and prayer. Many take this healing to be spiritual in nature or perhaps a general healing including both the physical and spiritual spheres. In this case, verse 16a is to be seen as a general deduction drawn from the specific situation. But it is better to take this sentence as a concluding exhortation to the discussion of physical illness. This is because of the verb for heal is consistently applied to physical afflictions. I just wanted to bolster that interpretation with a, one of the better commentators I believe on the book of James so how do you how do I wrap up this sermon he's wrapping up his letter I wrap it up this way and ask you these three questions one are you my dear brothers and sisters sheep of this flock are you consciously and instinctively responding to circumstances in life in prayer Consciously, instinctively, I probably should have added consistently. Do you respond to the providences of life, good or ill, almost always in prayer? I plead guilty. I want to do better of that. Number two, if you should be put on a bed of sustained affliction, will you please, this is more of a plea, it's not so much a question, I could make it a question. Will you call 
for the elders of the church to come and give us the privilege of praying over you. That's if you're really debilitated. It would be our honor and our privilege to do, to obey James chapter 5. And my third question would be, are you willing, when you are sick, to search your soul with regard to the need to seek out a brother or a sister and confess your sins against them? You know, obviously, this this. Scripture is not about a bunch of people getting together to have public confession of sins. This, this passage has been abused horribly. Church gatherings, little revivals supposedly, have been spawned by Christians who were willing to obey James 5 and get together and mutually confess their sins. And the devil ends up getting more pleasure out of those services than God. This is about me sinning against one of you brothers or sisters and coming to you and saying, will you forgive me? This is about us getting together with other individuals and saying, I need to confess and I, and, and I want us to pray. I want us to pray for each other. And what happens is if I sin against my brother Keith or my brother Jeff, sooner or later probably, and I seek his forgiveness and say, Jeff, would you pray for me? Sooner or later, probably Jeff's going to have to come to me and say, Pastor Ted, I, I feel like I've sinned against you and I, I need you to forgive me and I want you to pray for me. That's all it is. Christians helping other Christians to be strong by being humble enough to confess and to pray together. And we can do any of these things if Jesus had not made a way to the Father, if He had not made prayer possible. Prayer is only possible because someone died to pay for our sins and make the way into the Holy of Holies. He's our Savior. He's the one we trust for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Help us to obey it. Help us to be humble. Help us to be men and women of prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.